1: Uh, Frankly, I'm going to tell you it's a little scary. Not in generations has Wall Street absorbed the number of body blows it took today.
2: The
0: American financial system is rocked to its foundation as top Wall Street institutions topple under a mountain of debt. When you step back for just a moment, consider the events uh, of the last few days, it is truly unbelievable.
2: Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah, last week in our series on Islamic economics, my guest Dr. Abul Aziz Abdul Salam addressed how wealth disparities and poverty plague capitalist economies and how Zakat, the Islamic commitment to give to the poor a share in surplus wealth owned by the wealthy, helps to rebalance society without disincentivizing wealth creation. This week, we take a look at wealth generation in an Islamic society. How does Islam deal with the creation of wealth and at the same time address the problem of stagnant money that remains the prize of the super-rich 1%? It is common in the West to find multi-billionaires hoard vast amounts of wealth or invest their capital in financial markets that have little impact upon the real economy. It was the meltdown of these markets in 2008 that contributed to the biggest economic crash since the 1930s, leading to a global slowdown. I ask him about consumption and how the mega-rich spend lavishly on high-priced items, yet the majority of the world lives just above the poverty line, and how Islam looks upon this. What is the guiding philosophy that underpins an Islamic economy when it comes to economic growth, the wealthy, and the circulation of money in that economy? And what role, if any, does the state play in regulating this activity? Dr. Abdul Salam is a professor at the Birzeit University, Palestine. He joins us this week from his home in Al-Quds, Jerusalem. We would very much like to hear from you in a future episode. I hope to address your questions to our expert guest. As always, you can get in touch using the email address in the description of the program. Now, Dr. Salam, thank you for joining us on the Thinking Muslim podcast. I want to continue where we left off last week. Now, you argue that wealth generation is no bad thing, and uh, a Muslim or a non-Muslim in an Islamic society uh, would not feel uh, that generating wealth is uh, a bad thing. But also you argue that in capitalist economies, there is no trickle down. So the idea that uh, when wealth is generated, that wealth mysteriously uh, goes to the least wealthy in society or trickles down in society and circulates in society, uh, that is a myth. And uh, you very strongly argued using statistics, of course, last week, uh, that uh, in capitalist economies the top 1% get wealthier year-on-year. Year. How does Islam deal with this problem of concentrated wealth and, and how does Islam and uh, an Islamic government deal with the uh, procurement of large amounts of wealth and? Uh, that wealth not trickling down and not permeating the different stratas of society.
1: Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Thank you, uh, Brother Jalal, for having me for another episode. Um, So, um, in keeping with the topic that we started with, with, we cited some of those numbers about the super wealthy and how they uh, how their wealth keeps growing, and the um, um, gap between um, rich and poor keeps widening. if you recall some of those numbers in the oxfam report, um, it says that in two thousand and seventeen um eighty two percent of wealth generated went to the richest one percent of the global population, and it says that in two thousand and eighteen, uh, the wealth of the world's billionaires increased $900 billion, uh, um, which, mean, which translates to two and a half billions a day. And that's just to the billionaires. Now, uh, why am I um, uh, opening with this? We all know, and we have the saying that uh, money begets money. Uh, Wealth brings um, uh, more wealth to the wealthy. That's natural. That's the way things work. Um, What um, I want to highlight here is when uh, the super wealthy get wealthier and wealthier, uh, the question is, where does that wealth go? How does it um, grow? and who exactly benefits from that growth. So the way it is supposed to be is that um, wealth must be invested in uh, productive projects which generate jobs, which uh, produce goods and services, which um, uh, satisfy needs of the society and which uh, in a way which circulates that wealth uh, and benefits everybody including the owner of the project or or the farm or the uh, real estate developer and so forth real productive (coughs) investment is the best way in which uh, the wealthy can benefit society and can contribute uh, and circulate wealth
2: And your argument is, in capitalist economies, wealth is not generally invested in this real economy.
1: The way it works within the uh, capitalist system, the present modern system, is that much, a great much of uh, the wealth that is owned by the wealthy um, stays dormant Stays hoarded and uh, not uh, um, invested in any way. And then um, a whole lot that gets invested goes into what we can call the fake economy or the parasite economy, namely the financial economy. And um, financial economy means um, interest lending. Uh, to start with, Uh, uh, stocks and options trading and derivative trading, Um, uh, speculation on currencies uh, and so forth, Um, insurance products. Uh, For all those activities that I mentioned, there is no real production of any goods or services that are tangible to society, that society benefits from, all of those activities ride um, on the back of real productive economy. They um, um, share in the, uh, in the proceeds, in the profits of reproductive economy, while not bearing the consequences or the risks of real investment usually when you invest money in a project you share in the profits and you also risk losses when things do not go well and that's the way it's supposed to be whereas when you lend your money with interest to uh, actual uh, entrepreneurs um, what happens is you share in in a in a certain profit in an in a um, Uh, uh, a profit that comes your way uh, without um, any risk, and you do not share in the downside. (laughs) Um, What happens with um, insurance, for example, is that the insurance companies achieve great profits uh, at the expense of uh, the real productive economy, at the expense of Uh, everybody that is functioning in the economy and when things go south insurance companies uh, declare bankruptcy and the governments have to bail them out so there is no real downside for them it's not um, a productive part of the economy Uh, same can be said for um, uh, hedge funds that uh, you know speculate on stock markets, on currencies, on derivatives and so forth.
2: But Dr Abdus Salam, how would you argue against uh, the uh, capitalists who would suggest that uh, insurance companies and banks are central to uh, the safe, secure generation of wealth? Companies uh, need to share the risk and that's where insurance companies step in. And uh, for companies to grow, they need investment. And banks uh, do provide investment to startups and to medium-sized companies that uh, need the additional cash flow in order to grow their businesses.
1: Well, um, they claim that um, uh, banks and um, uh, insurance companies are uh, drivers of the economy. What they claim is that uh, the the those financial institutions actually contribute you know provide the money provide the um, uh, so-called security peace of mind um, uh, investment has to come from the banks um, and so forth so that's that's basically their argument but if anyone has been awake in the last Eleven years uh, uh, since uh, the the catastrophe of two thousand and eight, um, you know for certain uh, that uh, those institutions share in the upside and bear no risk for the downside and and that's you know um, um, we'll go into uh, some of those uh, examples especially what happened in, uh, in 2008.
2: And can you tell me what is the uh, estimated worth of the real economy versus this uh, so-called financial parasitical economy you describe?
1: Back in 2008, uh, some numbers were circulated about um, an estimation of the total amount of wealth, real wealth, in the world and it was estimated at $40,40 for U.S. dollars. But then, uh, when they look at the amount of money that is being traded, the uh, capitalizations of the markets uh, as a whole, stock markets, um, options markets, futures, Uh, you know, derivatives, um, bonds, securities, etc. And that number came up to like 400 uh, trillion dollars. Like 10 times the actual amount that exists in the world. So what are those uh, uh, amounts that are derived from the actual amounts? You could say that the... Ah uh, Forty trillion um, represent the real wealth, the production, the goods and services, uh, the, the the houses, the roads, the trains, the planes, etc. Now um, the the four hundred trillion represent all those bets and guesses and promises and uh, speculations. Uh, that in the future some profit will be generated and we will take it. Um, uh, For example, uh, the stocks of a company, the shares of a public company, become a commodity in and of themselves. Um, they, they, uh, They are traded regardless of what actually happens in that company. Uh, shares of a public company are not bought so that at the end of the year you're looking to collect some of the profits of that company because you actually care about their economic activity no what happens is that what you care is is this about is the stock price you want the stock price to uh, rise and you want to cash out um, um, so that you move on to the next uh, um, company uh, to the next stock that uh, you think will will uh, appreciate in the future
2: and so what determines the price of these shares if it's not actual economic activity or profits
1: uh, so um th- uh, the price is usually the um uh, capitalization of that economy in the market, uh, divided by the number of shares that they issued. Now, you look at many companies today that do not generate any profits. Actually, are losing money, but they have uh, uh, um, valuations in the uh, tens of billions of dollars. And you know who <laughs> I'm speaking of. Uh, Uber is the biggest example. So uh, those stocks, the recent IPO of Uber and Lyft and other companies, uh, those st- the, the, the total capitalization is, <clears throat> is in the, I don't know, was it 80 billion, 90 billion? But, but the company is actually losing every year posting losses in the billions as well. So what, is that, what does that price of the share represent? It represents a promise on the future. And that promise is being traded up and down in the market. So what kind of um, contribution to the economy is that activity in the stock market doing? That's a great question to me and one that is always ignored um in the discussion of um uh, the economic crashes that happen every 10 years or so uh, w- why is this um, um activity allowed to go on regardless of the the real productive economy why do we keep you know watching and um, uh, expecting the cra- the next crash to come which uh, you know uh, many people are uh, um, predicting for the, ne-
2: for, for the next few years. But has not the world learned lessons from the 2008 crash and the devastating impact it had on the global economy?
1: So uh, there's a good uh, uh, quote uh, that I forget who said it, uh, that everyone was dancing to the music uh, and hoping that the music will never stop. So (laughs) uh, it it was, you know, uh, it was the uh, up and to the right uh, chart that is um, pleasing to the eyes. And uh, uh, they saw uh, dollar signs everywhere. And um, um, they just hoped that it would never stop and that when when it stops, uh, they will not be accounted for it. And that's exactly what happened.
2: But let me unpick that a bit further. Why didn't the regulators pick up the problem uh, in the US financial markets as well as regulators around the world, the regulators in the European Union, in Britain, uh, are usually very well funded and and have within them experts uh, who should really be able to uh, establish uh, fault lines in the economic system?
1: The... Um, regulate regulators in the U.S. are mostly uh, industry men, uh, people who are from the banks and of the banks and by the banks. Uh, so the um, uh, Treasury Secretary at that time was Hank Paulson, who was an executive from Goldman Sachs. Uh, Alan Greenspan was the uh, head of Federal Reserve and um, uh, he was a a liberal um, uh, economy theorizer since the 80s, since the time of, you know, Ronald Reagan. So there was no regulation. There was a cover-up. What happened was a cover-up. You couldn't uh, um, stop the music and the dancing while it was happening. Uh, But when um, everybody um, uh, woke up to the reality, they had to cover up. And uh, what happened was they extended government bailout to the banks. And no one even, you know, in the Congress, no one spoke of um, rescuing the people who are defaulting on their houses who are being kicked out uh, to the streets. No one spoke of that. Uh, That's what uh, um, uh, any humanist would would think of first thing. What happens to all those families? Um, um, Who's responsible for what happened to them? Who tricked them into taking those mortgages? Um, uh, Why are they defaulting? What happened to their jobs, et cetera, et cetera? Now, um, what, what they did was they compensated the banks for the losses, the banks who caused the whole uh, debacle, um, while uh, ignoring uh, ordinary people. And they, again, uh, thought of the trickle-down effect. You have to uh, um, line the pockets of rich people, hoping that some trickle-down effect will happen. And uh, poor people will get some benefit.
2: Now, let's turn to the Islamic economic system. My understanding of uh, Islamic economics is that we can all contribute to a company by buying shares in a company. So, how does that, how distinct is that? How different is that from a capitalist share company?
1: Uh, That is exactly right. So, Islam encourages investment um, in the form of uh, companies in which an investor uh, partners with someone who works uh, and uh, uh, produces a tangible benefit uh, goods or services and the investor shares in the profit and takes the losses if they happen Uh, so when there are profits there's um, a uh, division of profits according to the uh, partnership agreement but when there are losses the investor takes all of the losses and the uh, worker uh, loses their effort so that's the mudaraba uh, form of company that islam um, uh, approved and um, <clears throat> we're not um we don't have time to go into the fiqhi matters or the, uh, you know, jurisprudence matters. Uh, but no matter what difference of opinion what there was um, historically among Islamic jurists, they never allowed, you know, the form of companies in which you can buy a share and become partner without agreement with. Uh, The other partners, there has to be an agreement uh, with the partners for you to become a partner. So uh, the share cannot just be traded the way it happens in public stock markets uh, nowadays. Uh, Therefore, when you are a partner, you care about the company, um, uh, you care about its activities, and you expect to profit from it. You expect it to be productive and profitable. And you cannot, you know, short sell it. You cannot uh, um, uh, offer your shares to the next person uh, uh, walking by um, and, uh, um, you know, for example, cause the uh, uh, down spiral effect of uh, selling off that happens in the stock markets for someone to become a partner to take over your shares everybody else in the company must agree to that
2: and in a capitalist company the share value as you describe is often not linked to the profit made by that company so how does it, a islamic company define uh, its share value Sh-
1: share values uh, i cannot tell you that in islam there's a way to calculate it uh, it's, it's a matter of the, the same way I said it, you know, the capitalization of the company divided by number of shares. What happens in an Islamic economic environment is that there's a, an estimate of the capitalization that is based on the actual activities and uh, uh, revenues and profitability of the company. The mere promise of the share value going up does not make the share value actually go up. The the, the mere possibility of the share uh, uh, being traded in a public market that can be sold on a whim uh, with a click of a mouse, uh, that in itself makes the shares go up because of the uh, um, activity of of trading. And that cannot happen in Islam simply. Therefore, as I said, It it has to be the real actual activity of the company that results in an estimate of the capitalization of the company.
2: Okay, so I want to now buy a share in a company or relinquish my shares in in a company. Um, How would I go about doing that in an Islamic economic environment?
1: Yes, exactly. So, um, So, suppose I don't want to be a partner anymore and I own uh, 10% of the company, and I uh, find a buyer or an investor who wants to take over and, uh, you know, become the uh, next partner um, uh, in my stead, then I would take the new partner to the other partners and tell them, look, he wants to become your new partner, and I want out. Do you agree to that? And here's what we agreed, and here's what he's paying me, and so forth. So <clears throat> uh so it, it it has to happen that way, uh, because the contract of a company in Islam uh is a joint contract, and it um requires the acceptance of all parties. Um you can uh, um, leave. You can leave a company, uh, but it has to be uh, with the knowledge and agreement of your partners, and uh, there has to be agreement about, you know, what happens to your um, uh, shares in the company. Are they going to pay you? Is there going to be a new partner, and so forth?
2: And what would motivate a multimillionaire or a billionaire to reinvest? Their money into the real economy. Um, surely, the uh, more principled thing would be to uh, contribute to uh, poverty reduction by giving money in charity. Yeah.
1: So, so um, easy um, profits, of course. Uh, so, uh, Islam does not tell you uh, to, you know, spend all of your money in charity, although that is encouraged. So Islam encourages charity, <coughs> encourages um, uh, interest-free lending, and uh, Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala promises a, a a reward that is double the reward of charity for lending your money to someone who is in need. So imagine that uh, uh, if you um, if you lend it and expect it back you get double the reward. And why is that? Because the person who is asking for a loan uh, may be more in need of the money than a person who is asking for charity. So in Islam, charity is encouraged, interest-free lending is encouraged, but also um, investment is the way to achieve profits uh, uh, out of your money you can invest in companies you can uh, build houses and rent them out and so forth you you can you can uh, invest in in many kinds of productive activities in industry in agriculture uh, and so forth uh, <laughs> yes what you cannot do is ask for interest on lending money and you know expect the money back with interest you cannot do that in islam it's haram
2: and so we started this discussion, Dr. Abdul Salam, by saying Islam uh, promotes the, uh, the circulation of wealth and, and uh, encourages wealth to not be the prize of the mega-rich. Uh, but, but can you spell out how does Islam do that? How does Islam uh, prevent the capitalist problem of keeping wealth stagnated or keeping wealth the prize of the very mega-rich? Uh, and And maybe can you explain what's the role of the state, if any, uh, in achieving that goal?
1: In the noble Quran, um, in a passage about the uh, distribution of uh, the proceeds of war, the the, the verse says um, So it describes the way the money has to be distributed. And then it says, so that it, wealth, does not um, just circulate among those who are wealthy. And that phrasing, that exact phrasing of the sentence, um, explains a reason for the rules of distributing um, um, the, the, the battle proceeds, and that reason in the it is called the illa, the reason for the rule itself. And the reason becomes in itself a rule that has to be followed. So the becomes the rule, uh, which means that in Islam, you have to take care of money not being circulated only amongst the wealthy. And that, in itself, is a, 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 a huge a, a door into regulation of money hoarding. Now, money hoarding itself is not agreed upon uh, in the in the Islamic jurisprudence uh, that it is haram. Now, money uh, hoarding uh, in the Quran. Um, there's an ayah over which there is dispute. And the ayah talks about those who uh, hoard uh, the money and do not pay uh, the due charity, the zakah. Um, and uh, so some understood that there are two prohibitions in this ayah. One against money hoarding, the other against you know, not paying the due charity. So, for example, Abu Darr al-Ghafari one of the companions of the Prophet, uh, was of that opinion. Uh, whereas the majority of uh, the companions and jurists uh, in Islam uh, do not consider money hoarding, money hoarding a sin in itself, except in the case when uh, the due charity is not paid. But, the ayah that I uh, cited before, the one about money is prohibited to be uh, you know, only circulated amongst the wealthy, that ayah in itself uh, can result in the regulation of money hoarding, meaning that you cannot keep an, a great amount of money dormant, inactive, uh, you have to circulate it. And you have to circulate it in a way that benefits society, that generates jobs, that produces more wealth and and makes it uh, makes that generated wealth available to not just the owner of the original wealth but everybody else. So you can keep generating wealth for yourself, you can um, uh, accumulate billions upon billions that's not prohibited in Islam but In the process, you have to circulate money up and down the society, up and down the uh, economic classes, so to speak. Do not let it just uh, circulate uh, in the circles of the wealthy. That that is an important determinant of the way an an Islamic uh, uh, government uh, regulates the way money is owned and the way money is invested.
2: So you've explained the problem in capitalist societies where either money is hoarded or money is spent in the financial markets which really do not produce much productive worth. But what about those mega-rich, the super-rich that spend money on vintage wine collections or art collections or sports cars and and purchase quite frivolous high priced items
1: yes uh, so in islam this um, um, overspending on um, uh, trivialities or um, and the term in quran tabdir wasting money Uh, so wasting money is shunned in islam uh, but (coughs) you have to be careful about, you know, because uh, when you speak of uh, personal virtue, that's different from uh, speaking about government regulation. And what we um, mostly care about in this discussion is government regulation. We can talk a lot about personal virtues and what you should and should do with with money once you have it. on a personal level, but there are regulations by the state that um, make it uh, improbable for someone to keep their money, you know, dormant or, or wasted for a long time without being accounted for them. Uh, for that kind of, uh, you know, hoarding money in a way that makes it uh, incirculatable. Uh, within the society. Th- th- therefore, I um, I wouldn't want to turn this discussion into, uh, you know, uh, a sermon about uh, uh, personally how uh, a believer should be, um, you know, managing their money. Uh, of course, uh, uh, a strict uh, determinant of this subject is You cannot spend it on haram. You cannot spend something on haram.
2: In Britain, we have a multi-billionaire, Richard Branson, who some years back bought an island out of his riches. I mean, what would Islam say about that?
1: Uh, Speaking of, you know, buying an island, that uh, may fall under something else that we will talk about in a coming episode, which is, you know, public property. And what um, an individual is allowed or not allowed to own uh, individually uh, so um, can a government you know grant access to an island to just this individual uh, for a certain am- amount of money? Uh, that's a big question and in Islam uh, the government manages public property in a way that Uh, guarantees access to it by, you know, the population as a whole. um, And privileges cannot be given to individuals in a way that blocks others from benefiting um, um, from that um, public property. And that's a huge way uh, in which Islam, you know, regulates, again, regulates... uh, um, Individual ownership of wealth. Um, and it's on the other hand a huge way in which the super wealthy are favored and privileged by the capitalist system that allows them to own uh, public resources and, and uh, public property and generate more and more wealth off of it, off of the uh, rest of the people, you know trying to use that property and paying for it to the super wealthy.
2: Jazakallah khair, Dr. Abdussalam, uh, for clarifying such an important topic on Islamic economics. Hopefully in the future we will look at private property and public property and uh, what Islam has to say about that. Just a quick note to our listeners, please do subscribe using your favourite podcast app. You can email me using the email address in the description of the program, uh, and you can also follow me on Twitter, thinking underscore Muslim. But for now, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.
0: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince.